Sinescapades playing with power. An episode of Sinescapades where we transition to a new month and take a break by talking about that month's issue of Nintendo Power. I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero. And yeah, we are talking about uh, the March 1993 issue of Nintendo Power as we start talking about the games that came out or, you know, as, as far as we know, came out in <laughs> March of 1993. And uh, we've got Buster and Babs Bunny on the cover of this one. We just got done talking about them in the last episode, so we don't need to go too much into that. But March 1993. Do you remember what you were doing this this month at all? Uh, having a birthday. I was doing that. Oh, OK, cool. I, I probably had a good time. Otherwise, no, don't really remember. We will talk actually in just a little bit about one particular event from this month that I do remember, but uh, I don't have a ton of of details beyond that. Yeah, I actually, um, for a similar reason, I remember another thing from this month that I will talk about. But uh, before we do that, we'll kick things over to Newsy so that we can start those conversations. Uh, Newsy, take it away. It's March 1993. The Heroes in a Half Shell hit theaters for a third time as TMNT3 opens and goes on to gross over 42 million. Peebo Bryson and Regina Bell managed to pry the number one spot on Billboard's Hot 100 from Whitney Houston with A Whole New World from the Aladdin soundtrack, but only managed to stay there for a week before being usurped by snow. And the 1993 Storm of the Century forms in the Gulf of Mexico and ravages the North American continent. It's a Effects are evident from Central America to Canada, causing massive snowstorms along the North American East Coast, resulting in snowstorms showing up as far south as Alabama. Back to you, Emmy Zero and Steampunk Link. Thank you, Newsy. So, did you want to tell your story first relating to what uh, Newsy just talked about? Yeah, so uh, I grew up in Florida. I grew up in North Florida specifically, and I do remember... A very special, very strange day that would have been around this time when it snowed in my hometown. And uh, the, it never happened before or since, but it was a strange kind of magical thing. I woke up one morning and my, my mom was like, it's snowing. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I went outside and it, it sure was. And... That was honestly really cool. Now that I've lived somewhere where it does snow most years, I have a little bit less of like a, a kind of like romantic idea around snow than I used to. But, you know, I still think of that whenever it starts snowing for the first time each year. I, I'm guessing it was uh, considerably less magical for people in the northern states who lost yeah, power. Yeah, it sure and, sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, just an absolutely brutal storm for for folks in the northern U.S. and Canada, uh, it sounds like. And uh, sadly, a uh, um, considerable death toll connected to that storm as well. Yeah, I didn't realize it was that bad, actually. But Storm of the Century, uh, they called it that for a reason. A lot of folks lost power because of all the snowfalls, and, and I think that is probably what led to a lot of that yeah it often is yeah um you know take take that stuff seriously folks when uh yeah when, when people don't have access to electricity in harsh weather a lot of people die hey on that note how about we start housing more people let's uh let's get on that folks yeah that'd be great yeah oh you didn't think we'd find a way to make that political we'll make it political that's right you can't stop us Nope. So my thing that I remember from this month, or that must have happened in this month, was uh, I also was attending a birthday party. Not my own, but uh, friends, because uh -huh. uh, he took us all to see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. Ah, perfect. Yeah, I remember thinking even back then, that movie was, was kind of underwhelming. Not great. 
Yeah. Like, I, I loved Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Use. Sure. You know, like... Yeah, me too. This should have been right up my alley. But yeah, uh, TMNT 3, I, I think that movie gets crapped on a lot these days because even as children, we kind of knew this movie wasn't... Like, there just wasn't a lot interesting happening here, and it wasn't a lot of fun. And and also, this is the one where they travel back to a feudal Japan. And I feel like another thing that's not in this movie's favor is that it is doing way less fun and exciting things with the Turtles in Time concept than the very good video game that almost certainly inspired this movie. You know, you don't have any villains in here that I... At least that I remember that kids would have recognized from the show or that even long long time fans would have recognized from the comics as far as i know no i think the only characters in this who are like long-running canon ninja turtles characters are like the main ones it's like the turtles april and casey yeah like they're the only ones in this movie that come from like the wider ninja turtle property and then the rest of it is sort of just some very rote basic let's do a a fake samurai movie for kids stuff you know yeah you know there's a prince who's angry there's a princess there's a evil white british guy that is pretty much it then uh peebo bryson and regina bell with uh, a whole new world so what's funny to me about this is that this is months after aladdin hit theaters but the song from the soundtrack is hitting number one on billboards hot 100 now I don't really understand how that works. Yeah, I don't know why it would have taken so long for... I don't know, maybe it was kind of a sleeper hit? You know, maybe it just, like, needed to make that climb up the up the charts. Whitney Houston's song was just number one for so long, it just took it that long to yeah. pry it away. <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's true. And then it was almost immediately supplanted by one of the great white dude rapping songs of the 90s, Snow's Informer. I'm almost certain I know this song, but I, off the top of my head, do not know this song. Uh, does the phrase licky boom boom down mean anything to you? It does not, actually. You're lucky then, I guess. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's weird. Snow is like a, a Canadian rapper, and the song has kind of like a pseudo reggae sound to it, I guess. <sighs> I'm always a little iffy about white folks doing reggae. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, it's weird. And also, I found out uh, later on, it turns out a lot of dudes like Snow are kind of playing it being kind of tough guys for, for their image. It turns out Snow actually was, like, a legit criminal. <laughs> like, he was actually, like, a drug dealer in, like, Toronto who had been to jail multiple times by the time he made this song, which is uh, strange because he kind of just looks like Jeremy Parrish. Oh, Big Papa Parrish. Big Big Papa Parrish would never do that. I wonder what he was uh, dealing. I wonder if it was uh, cocaine. Could be right there in the name, huh? How unfortunate is it to, you know, your, your stage name is Snow and your big hit single comes out right as the storm of the century hits. I know that's that's rough. That That's really... That's harsh. Uh, Yeah, enough about that. Let's move on to this issue of Nintendo Power. So something I have learned since we last did one of these is that uh, most of the covers that we're seeing are actually not just stock assets from the uh, companies that actually made the franchises that are being represented here. Like last week's, or sorry, last month's uh, Pugsley Scavenger Hunt cover was not just stock assets from Hanna-Barbera from the cartoon. It was actually done by, I think most of these were done by a single artist 
who was contracted out by the company that Nintendo contracted out to do these covers. I've since learned about this from a really great Twitter account called at Art of NP. Uh, he's got a really impressive collection of video game paraphernalia. I, I found out about him because he was actually, uh, speaking of Big Papa Parish, he was on Retronauts uh, not too long ago. And that was how he kind of surfaced for me. But I watched some of his videos on YouTube as well. And he's got uh, things in his collection. Like he has some of the models, it looks like, from some of those um, clay looking covers. Oh, yeah. Cool. That's awesome. The things that I definitely recognized were the Mario model from the Mario paint cover and Dr. Wily in his saucer from I think it was either the Mega Man 2 cover or the Mega Man for Game Boy cover. I think it was one of those. But uh, anyway, yeah. So uh, follow that if you're into this sort of history at all. Uh, really interesting account. He's got a lot of cool things that he puts up. So uh, he actually had a thing about the Pugsley's scavenger hunt cover. I think he had found like the original print or something and was adding it to his collection. And so I actually replied to him, wait, so these weren't just stock assets from the companies that made those cartoons or, or those properties. And uh, he told me, no, it was like one guy, basically. This guy did a good job. The art is frequently like very, Yeah, you would be hard pressed to tell that it's not, uh, official art for the thing. Yeah, it was only when I really took a second look at the Pugsley cover that I realized, oh yeah, okay, the stripes on his t-shirt are like different sizes and colors and things like that. And his uh -huh. skin is like more pale than it is in the actual cartoon. But yeah, it's a really good approximation of yeah. that property. And yeah, the, the guy who did this, I, I'll, I'll have to get his name. I know his name is out there somewhere. I just didn't um, have time to look that up. But yeah, really talented guy. Hopefully by next issue, I'll, I'll be able to do that. But this one, it's even more impressive because honestly, like, I really cannot tell if this was an original piece done by that same guy or uh -huh. if Buster and Babs, at the very least, are, you know, just straight up images from Warner Brothers. But I, I would have to assume that they're not. Probably not based on what you've said, but it's it's genuinely pretty pretty hard to tell yeah they look incredibly on model the only thing that, that sort of gives it away or you know the, the balloons and the the background of with all the houses and everything does not have that sort of tiny tune style to it that's that's true actually but buster and babs themselves looking pretty good i, mean, I, I think it's like the shading on buster's shirts like you can see sort of colored pencil style almost that that was very common in a lot of nintendo power art there's there's some shading to buster's shirt that i don't know we would have gotten if this was just you know a straight up sell from you know the cartoon yeah it would have been it probably would have been a lot flatter looking i suspect yeah really impressive piece if if that is the case Super Nintendo really dominating the magazine at this point. We've got Star Fox, which is pretty exciting. We've got uh, less exciting Super Strike Eagle, Super Conflict, and Wayne's World. Oh, man, I, I'm a little excited to talk about that in Wayne's World article, actually. Uh, I've got a couple of thoughts about it, but uh, it's sort of too bad that like a, a full quarter or so of the the Super Nintendo coverage here is taken up by a couple of like military aircraft games that even the people writing the magazine don't seem like particularly enthused about. I think Super Conflict is a Vic to Kai joint. And then uh, Super Strike Eagle comes to us from 
Oh, Microprose. Oh, okay. Well, I think we, we might have touched on them when we talked about Spectrum Holobytes. It seems like that would have come up. Before we get into any of that and the Game Boy and NES uh, things, we got to talk about Player's Pulse. I am going to say really quick that there are some things we're probably going to want to dig into a lot. So there's going to be some features of this magazine that we're probably just going to brush past pretty quickly. Yeah. Just for time. But one thing that I want to dig into a little bit right now is this Player's Pulse section here, specifically just something buried at the bottom of it, talking about a show called Video and Arcade Top 10, which uh, I did not know this show existed, but this was kind of like a a magazine format show that aired in Canada and was kind of talking about not only video games, but music and TV and stuff like that. It's kind of interesting. I, I've never heard of this. You know, maybe it was like around for just like a little while and then it went away, you know, so maybe that's why. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, because I mean, like, I know it was in Canada, but it's still pretty surprising to me that a show like this would have existed that I wouldn't have heard about. You know, like I'd, I'd known about shows like Supercade and Video Power, but I'd never heard of this one. But well, here, I've, I've got some notes right here, and uh, you can tell I've really got notes here because of the paper rustling that I totally didn't fully in in post. <laughs> um, anyway, let me just uh, take a look at this here, see how long the show ran. Let me just take a drink of coffee here before I do that. <laughs> Oh my god, this show ran for 15 years. What? 15 years? Yeah, 15 years from 91 until 2006. Wow, I was in college by the time this show was off the air. That's crazy. It it is, isn't it? It's just nuts that this thing lasted so long. And again, that I'd never heard of it once. I actually did watch a few episodes of this in preparation for talking about it. It's an interesting little thing. It's almost a little bit like early tech TV kind of stuff in some ways. Very loose format to it. You know, it's like, hey, we're, let's kick it over to this person and this person dressed in some very, very 90s attire uh, will tell us about, you know, like what musical stuff is happening. Like what's the hit music right now? And uh, a lot of times there will be trivia saying, hey, who was the person who did this? And if you get it right and mail them a postcard or whatever, they'll send you a CD. Or actually, I, th- I think they were saying, like, in some cases, like, when they were talking about movies, they were sending people laser discs. so... Oh, okay. Real cutting edge there, yeah. Their audience was, was very geeky, and I'm all for that. And then, yeah, they would have video game competitions as well, live in the studio, sort of like a video power sort of thing, if you're familiar with that show at all. Oh, God, we really need an excuse to talk about video power one of these days. Yeah, that's real. That's really true. Ugh, but uh, that, that day will not be today, unfortunately. But, yeah, you know, an, an interesting show. And actually, you know what it kind of reminded me of? I, uh, there was a show on Nickelodeon in the mid-90s called U to You. The, like, the letter U, the number two, the letter U. You know, again, kind of this sort of loose format in a very warehousey looking studio with just, you know, a lot of 90s stuff around. Uh-huh. Do you remember the show at all? No, I don't, actually. This is uh, you're telling me about a, a new thing for me. So the big thing about this show was that it was very online in the mid 90s, which was, you know, kind of unusual. It centered a lot on audience participation, sometimes in well, not real time because the show wasn't live. At least I don't think it was. Right. But, you know, like having people contribute stuff via email or via snail mail. It was kind of interesting. It was maybe a little bit unfocused because the main thing with UTU was just that internet communication sort of thing, but like not really knowing what they always wanted to be talking about, at least from what I remember. It was a very short-lived show. Okay, sure, sure. This feels 
kind of like in that loose format, but a lot more focused about what it wants to talk about and things like that. It's it's an interesting artifact from that time period. I'd be interested in going back and looking at a little bit more of that. I'm guessing a bunch of it's on YouTube. Yeah, there's at least some of it on YouTube. I found a couple episodes. Anyway, yeah, so that was what I had for Player's Pulse. Did anything stand out uh, to you here? Not really. Um, kid got to go to space camp, and that seems pretty cool. Once again, growing up in Florida, we... Definitely did a few field trips over the years uh, from school to uh, to the Kennedy Space Center, but uh, I never went to space camp personally. We we only ever did the like day trip thing where you do uh, kind of a tour around the publicly accessible area and uh, then then do a few space camp type things uh, and um, you know. Uh, that kind of stuff, and there's like a simulator and things like that. I always thought that Space Camp seemed kind of cool, and uh, I hope that Alex Guasco, the winner of the Space Shuttle Players Poll Contest, uh, had a real blast, like this thing says. That's neat. Somebody asking about Street Fighter 2, can you play as the bosses? No, you cannot, at least not yet. No, just just wait a little while and you will be able to buy another $70 cartridge that will let you do that, though. <laughs> yes, yeah. Don't worry, David A. Arnold of Nashville, Tennessee. Just wait a few months and you will get to do that. I think it's coming up. All right. Well, with that out of the way, let's talk about some Star Fox. Let's get into the sky with our animal friends and let's talk about the first of what is it promises to be a, at least a couple of deep dives on Star Fox in the magazine. I'm pretty sure Star Fox is on the cover of the next one, but yeah, I mean that seems like that'll be like kind of the big thing on it, and then they'll move on to other stuff. But let's talk a little bit about these models. They're very cool looking, almost a little bit unsettling in a way, but I I, I kind of like them. Wonder what ever happened to those models? Like how long do you think they just sat in a warehouse somewhere, decaying slowly? Ah, oh, God. You know, I hope they are in somebody's collection who has like restored them and takes good care of them because they're very cool. Like there's obviously a lot of detail in the outfit and the the fur and in a couple in one case like flesh of the the Star Fox characters looks looks really neat like I assume it was it was some kind of you know real fur material or you know something but faux fur um and yeah like they're just neat I I love the fact that they are clearly like a physical object that was being photographed yeah, it's really cool. And I wonder if that R-Wing was a model, too, that was photographed. I can't. It's kind of hard to tell. That's a good question. The shading on it makes it look pretty real, but it could also just be like a piece of art. So, yeah, this is kind of continuing on from like the Star Fox hype train that they started building back in the special issue at the start of the year where they really kind of talked up the, the Super FX chip. This one is kind of finally going deeper into what the game actually is and what you do in it. Yeah, we get a lot of screenshots here. And in fact, we get a map of at least one level in this game, which is interesting because I'm not sure if this is the first time they've ever done this, but it's the first one that I can think of off the top of my head in which they've actually got to show a game map for a 3D space. And, uh, you know, I think they do a pretty good job here. Obviously, it's not, you know, as quite as neat to me as looking at, you know, a, a 2D no. level map consisting entirely of screenshots. But I think they did a really good job of illustrating, you know, this this level here in Star Fox. 
Yeah, and they've got kind of like a three quarters perspective on it, um, where you know they've actually marked out what like you know the far wall of the the level is. You know they they've done the thing here that they've done a few times in the past, where they're kind of going into gameplay systems a little bit more than doing like a play by play breakdown of the levels. Uh, so we have a page where they've got highlighted map of the main game screen showing like what all the different like UI elements do. There's kind of a a big spread on like all the power-ups and the different features of your ship and uh there's a little bit of a thing about the different members of the star fox team you know give it give it some character and there's also a thing here that i think is interesting where they talk specifically about what they call the flight corridor which is the game level that like the the space that you're physically going to be inhabiting in the game you know it's a forward scrolling shooter and you can kind of move a few screens to like the left or right and uh, up and down and that's a new enough concept here that they seem to have tried to apply like a a sort of like proper noun specific term to it by calling it the flight corridor just to sort of like give you uh, you know, a, a little bit of something to focus on here while they explain it. It's interesting because I that feels to me like maybe that was like a phrase they came up with during development or something that, you know, was like how they were referring to this, this mechanic internally. Because this is not a thing that, as far as I know, is, is like a common term for this kind of game. Like nobody really talks about like the flight corridor and like Space Harrier or whatever, you know? I don't know, though, like because I, I wasn't really playing a lot of these kinds of games back in the day. So I don't know, like maybe this was, you know, uh, the terminology that they used at one point. I mean, like, it makes sense. No, it absolutely does, you know. There's once again in here a little bit of an explanation of like polygons and what makes them different and and kind of special compared to the way that graphics um, that people were used to at this time usually worked. You know, still, I think, trying to acclimate people to what like moving around in a 3D space would actually be like in a game before they, they do it in the game itself. It's cool, though. I think it's it's accomplishing the goal of making people more hyped up for this game and also making it something that they can actually imagine playing like you know okay this is a real game that works in this way and this way you know for for something that is coming kind of right before sort of the main big feature on this game is going to come out uh that i think that's that's the right way to do it so yeah this is a good this is a good feature i, li- I like the way this whole thing is is set up i never played this game i played the heck out of Star Fox 64 on the Nintendo 64, but I'm interested to see how this all holds up today. If this still, yeah, yeah. you know, if, if, if this still is a fun thing to play. I, I'm curious to see what you think of it too, because I like this game and I have a lot of nostalgia for it. And I'm, I'm curious to see how somebody who does not have nostalgia for it responds to some of the stuff with, with how this game works. So Star Fox is definitely like one of my Super Nintendo favorites from back in the day. So I'm excited to go back to it as well. I haven't played it in a few years. So as you can tell from how heavily they're focusing on it in the magazine, it is coming up quite soon for us. One other thing that I think is interesting here that I do want to note, the, the sort of opening bits here mentions that that Star Fox was revealed to the world uh, in that special issue of Nintendo Power earlier this year. I wonder if that's true, or if it's just that was the first time it showed up in the magazine here. It's kind of difficult to 
imagine something that was like as big of a property for Nintendo not getting hyped up for a long time, but also things just worked differently back then. Yeah, the turnaround time on a game was a lot shorter back then than it is now. So, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if that was actually the first time that we'd really heard about it. Because, I mean, you know, where else did you hear about games other than on TV commercials? But usually you only saw those when that game was actually out or was, you know, just maybe weeks away from coming out in some cases. And, and especially since this wasn't a game that was like out like a year before in Japan or anything, you know, it's, it's not like there was like a version of this that magazines could like see and talk about before the company itself decided to start releasing information about it. We will be talking a lot more about Star Fox when we get to that game for Snescapades, and we'll probably be talking about it even more when we get to next month's issue. So, yes, there'll be lots of Star Fox chat. After that, we get Super Strike Eagle, which um, this sure does look like a game in which you're playing a fighter jet. Something that even though they've devoted a several page spread to it here, this is one of the ones where I think it, it doesn't even really seem like the Nintendo Power writers had a ton of excitement for this game like okay we got to do like you know a four-page write-up of this but maybe kind of knowing like the appeal of something like this might have been somewhat limited since the super nintendo primary demographic probably skewed a lot younger than you know most folks are interested in this sort of thing but i don't know maybe maybe there's just like some really hardcore military flight sim fans out there that you know started in their early teens. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, speaking personally, I don't think I would have been interested at all in this game at the time. And, uh, honestly still kind of not now. So this one was uh pretty tough for me to get through. I, I would say, yeah, I'm not looking forward to this one, but, uh, it's coming up this month. So why howdy it is. And, uh, Hey, speaking of military related things that we have little to no interest in the next, <laughs> the next feature is, for a game called Super Conflict. Yeah, which is both a military game and a hex-based strategy game. Before COVID happened, my wife and I were doing some game night stuff with a few people, and I've been trying to get more into board games. But I will say, nothing will get me to nope out of a board game faster than a hex-based grid. Once you start getting out the hexagonal tiles, I am gone. I'm just like, nope. Don't don't care what this is. This is yeah. already too complicated for me. So yeah, a strategy video game involving military stuff with hex-based tiles. I don't think you could have found a combination of things to make me bounce off of something any harder than I will inevitably bounce off of this game. The feature in the magazine is not really doing a bunch to to make it sound more exciting than what it it seems to be honestly basically this is sort of just like an attempt to do like a holistic like general here is the game here are the general concepts behind how it plays here's some big inventories of different kinds of units you use in the game and what they do there's sort of like a attempt to like go through and detail a few different scenarios to kind of see how these things play out practice but really there's only so much you can do in like a four to six page magazine write up about this kind of game to really kind of explain it. And honestly, I think in a lot of cases, people kind of going into this sort of know whether this is going to be something they they want to, you know, play or not. Yeah. And the last thing I want to say about this is the name of this game, Super Conflict. Like I, 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 
hate the word conflict as a sort of synonym for war that makes it sound like oh it's not actually a war yeah it's just a little a little tiff you know we are totally going and bombing the hell out of people and probably murdering a lot of folks who may or may not have anything to do with the conflict but oh it's not a war it's not a war it's just a conflict i hate everything about this game already i may not even play this uh, that's a rough one. I'm not really looking forward to that. But hey, up next, we are moving on into the feature about the Wayne's World game. I don't know what's going on with this, but this is the worst written piece of like video game magazine feature writing that I, I've seen in any of my lookbacks on vintage video game magazines. <laughs> like, it's so bad. The text talking about the Wayne's World game is bad, but, like, what's really bad is the things they try really half-heartedly to write in, like, the voices of Wayne and Garth throughout this. Oh my goodness. It's, it's rough, folks. It's really rough. But honestly, like, it might be what this game deserves. It almost certainly is. I've never heard a single positive thing about this game from anyone who's played it. This game, because it was based on a very popular movie, a lot of people did play this game. I, I never did. But, uh, yeah, I've never heard anybody say anything good about this at all. They've kind of got to describe what you do in the game, but they can't editorialize about the fact that it's, like, objectively not very good. Right. Oh, I'm, I'm trying to find the bit here here there's a bit in here where they basically have to straight up say this game is plays in a pretty normal way like a pretty generic way for this kind of game but that'll make it more appealing to more people <sighs> like it's like that's the best they can do yeah and and what is this what is this dialogue what is this dialogue okay l let's do a thing here you be wayne i'll be garth let's read the dialogue that's on page 24 okay all right i'm i'm ready for this okay so I, I'm Wayne. You're, you're Wayne. Go for it. Yeah. Well, my friend, this is another fine conundrum you've gotten us into. Sorry, Wayne, but this gelatinous cube doesn't want to let go of me. It's making me feel kind of oogie. Hold on, little buddy. <laughs> Remember the skipper in Gilligan's Island? I'm on my way. I did not editorialize that. That was on the page. That's literally on the page. Hurry up. I'm gonna hurl. And scene. That's the dialogue they've done here. Does that sound anything like either of those characters? But you know what? Here's the thing, though. I don't know because I did not watch a lot of this as a kid. I don't. I have not seen the movie. Like, I just really. Wow. Okay. I know that is something I probably need to to fix. It's so weird because I can't tell if this is if this is truly somebody just trying to do an approximation of these characters and and doing it really badly, or if they're like just straight up not like just like looking straight into the camera and like giving like a middle finger, like they just are not even trying at all. I feel like this is sort of a, a problem with things like Wayne's World, where I feel like a lot of it gets condensed down into the catchphrases and doesn't actually talk about what the, the what the sketch or what the movie is about necessarily. You know, a lot of Mike Myers properties, like what is Austin Powers? Like, oh, it's it's Shagadelic, baby, yeah, you know. And yeah, right. It's the vo it's the voice and the catchphrases, basically. Yeah. The other thing that's very true here is that the um, the actual game, as it's shown off around all these things, 
uh, looks like a freaking nightmare. <laughs> I cannot even begin to describe the level of anxiety I have looking at these level maps that they're showing here. It's so confusing looking, it makes me want to hurl. So am I to assume that from that dialogue that Garth is the damsel in distress in this game? It, it, it seems like it, yeah. It looks like he's been kidnapped by a gelatinous cube and taken into the, like... The TV world. Uh, you hate to see it. Yeah, I'm, I'm wanting to say I think uh, our friends over at uh, SNES's Life. Are they our friends? I'm going to say they're our friends. They're our friends. They're friends of the show. Yeah, yeah friends of the show. Uh, I think they played this one recently and did not like it. That's the way I've heard it goes with pretty much everyone who's played this game. Looking forward to that one. That one's going to be coming up pretty soon as well, I assume. And uh, oh boy. But uh, one that has already come and gone that we liked uh, considerably more than I think we're going to like Wayne's World is uh, Tiny Toon Adventures, Buster Bus Loose. And that is the subject for the, I guess, probably the most extensive game breakdown in this issue. Uh, and it's a good one, too. I like this whole feature on Tiny Toons. This is a pretty extensive walkthrough for really, like, the whole game, actually. Yeah, just about. So here we are looking at a lot of Tiny Toons characters that almost certainly were just provided by Warner Brothers. I don't think this was original art, but there's some weird things about it that are a little bit off. Like, there's a picture of Plucky with a white shirt on that I don't remember him ever wearing on the show. Also, this is where I noticed for the first time, because now I'm just always, like, looking at this stuff really closely and trying to determine like okay is this off model is this on model i noticed that babs does not wear those white gloves that you see a lot of cartoon characters wear and buster does and i was thinking like oh i wonder if this is an off model thing it turns out no it is not i went back and i watched tiny toon adventures or a few episodes of it and babs does not wear those gloves i had never noticed that either that's it's it's really strange but it's true she has actual hands like actual like rabbit person hands that are the same color as the the rest of her her fur there's you know actually a lot of different images of different Tiny Toons characters in this. I like the layouts here. This one feels a lot more what I always like hope these Nintendo Power sort of game uh, game walkthroughs are going to be like. Yeah, this one feels very classic Nintendo Power strategy guide kind of feel to it. it I, I like this. I like this sort of thing a lot. And of course, that means we've got the full screenshot maps of entire stages sort of laid out here. Uh, and it, it's kind of interesting looking at all these things for, for the levels after having played some of the game myself. I kind of thought that things like the, the library room in the first level were longer sequences than they were. There's a lot of verticality to some of those spaces, which I think makes the maps a little bit more condensed than they would be if they were all just, you know, one long level like some of the other ones are. But yeah, so we get a lot of Tiny Toon stuff. And then as if that wasn't enough Warner Brothers, we also get a poster for Tasmania. This one does not look on model to me from what I remember of Tasmania. This, it this looks, is a weird looking image. Yeah. Yeah. It looks just a little bit off. Like we've got, um, I'm trying to remember all the characters names now. I think it's like a 
didgeridingo there in the background. When I was looking at him, I was like, okay, he definitely does not look like uh, the way I remember him looking from the cartoons. So I, I think this is probably an original piece, uh, maybe by the same guy who does the covers. I'm not sure. But unfortunately, they were not listing credits for the poster in the masthead. So I don't know who exactly did that. The other two characters there behind Taz, we've got, I believe their names were Bull Gator and Axel. Bull was kind of the, the squat looking guy. Both of them are, are crocodile people. Uh, do you know who did the voice of Bull? I do not. Uh, someone we have talked about a lot on this show <laughs> recently, John Aston. He was making the rounds in, in 90s cartoons, huh? He was. We got a little bit more uh, Buster Bust Loose. We got the, oh, stage five, actually. This, this magazine, The magazine I've got here is a little bit out of order. I'm pretty sure the magazine scans we're using are out of order. Well, I think maybe like the, the, the fold-out poster, like some of that stuff would have been on the back of it. I think maybe that's what threw off. Uh, but anyway, after that, we get another Nestor's Adventures. This one hasn't attempted a joke. I had to read it a few times before I even understood that that's what the thing in the last panel was supposed to be. A lot of really good pasta jokes in this comic about Wing Commander. Nestor is getting into one of the, the ships from that game, and he flies a bunch of fancy maneuvers that he calls uh, High G Twister Noodleizer. There's some more pasta references. He Talks a big game about how he's so good at this, and he's going to get those fur balls. And then the last panel is him and his fellow pilot having been captured because Nestor doesn't know a, a damn thing about anything. And uh, they're eating, I guess, pasta in Kilrathy prison. Yeah, which, you know what? Hey, I mean, it seems like they're all right to their uh, prisoners of war. You know, good to know. Yeah, right? So yeah, so that's Nestor's Adventures. And then we move on to King Arthur's World uh, uh, by Jalica, which this one is kind of interesting. So we're not usually big on the strategy games, but this one looks like a strategy game by way of Lemmings. Yeah, it looks like it's kind of like a side-scrolling strategy game where you have different units that you send around to to different parts of these big ant farm-ish levels to trigger different things and get through barriers and stuff. This one I'm intrigued by. I'm ex I, I'm curious to play this one. Yeah, me too. I, I am also really interested to try this one out and see how it works. Um, you know, because I mean, we we both really liked Lemmings, I think, on the Super Nintendo. So mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. Especially if this game maybe has like mouse support, which, you know, Mario Paint has come out that's not outside the realm of possibility. No, I think actually they mention here that it has mouse support. Yeah, it does. In, in the, the, the little purple box on the first page, it does actually mention that this has mouse support. All right. I'm even more excited. I don't think this feature does a great job of actually explaining how this game plays or exactly what you do with all these things in it. And part of why I'm so curious to play this is because I still don't really have a super clear idea of like what the flow of uh, a stage in this is. And usually these Nintendo Power features are pretty good at giving you like a sense of how it is, like what the experience of playing the game is like. Yeah, I will say what I'm seeing in these level maps is uh, in each one there's uh, the king is denoted somewhere in the map, so I'm going to assume that the objective of the game is to capture the enemy king, I'm guessing? That that would make sense, yeah. But, um, like I said, we will find out uh, soon, because I think... That might be one of the first games we play for March, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one is coming up. That one is coming right up. Then we get some classified information about Wing Commander, we've got a stage select, we've got Prince of Persia, Skull Jagger. Remember that one? Sure do. Uh, the Westicans, they, they were revolting. Yep, yeah, um... 
We got uh, what I think is the NES version of Smash TV there. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, something called Power Punch 2, which I'm not even sure I was aware of on the NES. But I don't know. Any, any of this uh, stand out to you? The only thing that stood out to me a little bit here is there's a couple of things they describe that I'm kind of wondering whether those are actually, like, cheats that were built into the game or if they're actually weird glitches that somebody discovered. The thing with Prince of Persia... Where you can essentially, like, if, if you do it right, you can essentially make the game think that your password for an early level is the one for, like, level 20. I, I feel like if they were going to design a feature like that into the game, they would do it in a way that did not sound so much like a speedrunning trick to me. And it's kind of similar thing with the uh, the thing about pilot wings here. Uh, where it essentially says that, like, basically by, like, going into the hang glider mode, uh, you can spam the A button in this one level and, like, go out of bounds, it sounds like. Uh, there's some kind of interesting stuff there that I feel like toes the line between this is, like, a, a designed cheat code that was put into the game by its developers, and this is a weird thing we can we figured out that you can do in this game that maybe nobody intended. Most of these cheats or glitches or whatever they were uh, came from the developers themselves for the most part. Even when Nintendo themselves discovered glitches in uh, copies of their games, like they would still, like the Minus World was in a an issue of Nintendo Power classified information at one point. So after that, we get the Star Fox comic still looking great. I don't know if I'm as crazy about the story or, or like if I'm as crazy about where the story is going by the end of this. It feels like it goes in a weird Top Gun-ish direction by the end of this that I'm not wild about. Where we left off the comic the last time, the Star Fox team had been invited to come to Corneria to fly the R-Wings in, in the, the fight against the, the evil Empire. And they were stowed away on a, a like transport ship when a hostage situation broke out. The way this issue starts is they're having like a, a standoff with the the chief bandit hostage takers, like this cool looking gross lizard man who has uh, taken captive this rich like heiress. He threatens to to shoot her if they don't leave and you know do let let the bandits do what they want. And uh, then luckily Slippy was you know, taking a, a bath in like this two this big like you know, tube of water and is able to to like surprise the the bandits and, and get the drop on them. Really good image of of Slippy like slamming this like giant lid from the thing he was in down onto one of the lizard men. And the, the, they've got the, the panels tilted in, in an interesting way. Um, I think that's pretty good, too. It's a cool, pretty dynamic layout. But then it just kind of flips to a scene with them already on Corneria testing out the R-Wings. This is where it kind of loses me a little. The folks on the ship say, you know, hey, thanks for taking care of that, Star Fox. You know, whatever you, whatever you guys want, you got it. And they're like, uh, how about we have first-class seats here instead of having to stow away? And then we, we get... Fox kind of daydreaming about not only um, the R-Wings and getting to test them out, but that cute girl that they just saved who happens to be a Fennec Fox. So, you know. Uh, right, yeah. We've immediately introduced like a damsel in distress and now potential romantic interest for Fox McCloud. And 
I will say the one thing that I like about the sort of second phase of this issue here is, uh, you know, is, is we, yeah, like you said, very drastically cut from them on their way to Corneria to, okay, we're in Corneria and we're testing out the R-Wings now. After we've recovered from the whiplash from that, uh, you know, we've, we've got everybody testing them out. We've got Team Star Fox there, and we're, we're kind of getting a sense that these are guys who don't do it by the books, but darn it, they get results, so... That's right. They get they get the job done. Yeah, but we also see uh, a, another test pilot, and it is Farah Phoenix, the Fennec Fox. Wow, that's a, that's a mouthful. Who they rescued from the, uh, the transport in the first act they're, they're setting her up that she's not just a damsel in distress that she's also you know a capable pilot in her own right no she's a cool other pilot so that's pretty cool they flirt a little bit in the air and then uh the issue ends with a kind of a cliffhanger where they uh have decided to to have a little impromptu race and it uh unbeknownst to them takes them right into imperial airspace imperial space yeah which i guess like corneria is just right next to is that I guess so. That seems like a problem for them, definitely. Like, that doesn't work for me as, as much as, like, okay, they're, they're kind of goofing off a little bit as they're testing these things, and so that leaves them maybe somewhat unprepared as the Imperial Armada or whatever, you know, they're, they're called in this universe, maybe plan an attack. So I could be wrong about this, but I feel like this might actually be literally a thing that happens in Top Gun. I've seen that movie once, and it was a long time ago, so I don't remember it that well, but I, I feel like I remember basically this exact scenario happening in Top Gun at one point. I don't know, it just feels like something to create a cliffhanger here for no real reason. Yeah, after the, the pretty strong start this comic had, this one was a little bit disappointing to me. I'm with you there. I, I felt kind of the same way. One other thing that I think is is kind of fun, Star Fox Zero, the Star Fox game for the Wii U. I, I've never played that game, but apparently a special unlockable ship in that game is the Black and Red R-Wing, which uh, to me looks very much like the ship that Farrah Phoenix is flying here. That could be a very deep cut reference in that game <laughs> to, to this extremely old and possibly apocryphal piece of Star Fox media. Well, I'm trying to think, in Star Fox 2, there were two other pilots. Both of them were women, I think. One of them bears a pretty close resemblance to Farah, but it's not named Farah. Right, yeah. So that could have been, like, an early concept for a character they were actually thinking of using that they, they sort of went a different way with. I wonder if Star Fox 2 is considered canon now. I don't we, we, we never see those other two pilots ever again, do we? No, we never do. Uh, but also, Star Fox 2 was sort of persona non grata for a long, long time. Yes. Maybe that was sort of starting to change a little bit by by the time they did the, the Wii U one in like 2016 or whatever. I like Star Fox 2, by the way. I think that's kind of a neat game. One day we'll find some way to talk about that one. It will be the last game that we cover because it was the last SNES game to be released in North America. So a few hundred episodes from now, we will be talking about Star Fox 2. Speaking of sequels, now we've got Adventure Island 2, Aliens in Paradise on Game Boy. And uh, this is uh, yeah another Game Boy game that's, that's very heavily influenced by, if not just a straight up port of an NES game. Looks like Master Higgins Sprite has been shrunk down a little bit. He's got a little less resolution that he did on the NES, which is probably a smart move for, you know, the, the limited resolution of the Game Boy screen. But this game has uh, Master Higgins' dinosaur friends. He, he picks up the playing card suits and he gets to ride a different dinosaur. 
this is more like the Adventure Island game I wanted and didn't get when we played Super Adventure Island. I'm disappointed in you, Hudson. As far as I'm concerned, once you introduce a video game in which your character can ride a pterodactyl, the next game in that series better have that pterodactyl come back. Yeah, at this point, you've introduced cool dinosaurs, all with different powers. You know, some of them can swim. Some of them can breathe fire and wade in lava without being hurt. Some just shoot sparks out of their tail. And one, again, cannot emphasize this enough, is a goddamn pterodactyl. What is an Adventure Island game now without being able to ride a pterodactyl? It's, it's a Twinkie without filling is what it is. It is a sad sponge cake. Who's just eating sponge cake without anything else? Who's doing that? Sad people. What kind of monster feeds someone sponge cake without frosting or, or strawberries or something on it? And that's what every Adventure Island game that does not have fun dinosaur friends for you to ride is. Yeah, that's right. It is a sad, empty Twinkie. But this game's not that. This game is the full Twinkie. It looks like it's got a lot of good stuff in it. I've never played this one. I really have very little experience with the Adventure Island games beyond the one that we played for the show today, for the show a while back. Uh, I think it does look like it has a little bit of that big sprite problem that a lot of Game Boy games have. You know, with the way Adventure Island plays, though, that might actually be okay with this. Yeah, it would be interesting to see how well this works out on the Game Boy. And, uh, and speaking of things being ported from the NES to Game Boy, next up we've got Mylon Secret Castle, which I'm not even sure I knew that they ported this to the Game Boy. I did not, definitely. Uh, I definitely remember Mylon Secret Castle. I played this back in college when I was kind of getting into trying to recollect as many uh, NES games as I could. You know, I, I think Mylon's is an okay game. I think it's it's... Kind of rough, uh, given that, you know, it came out in 88 over here and was made back in 86 over in Japan. It was probably already showing its age by the time it came out over here. But I, I think it's got some interesting tricks. It, I think it's poor translation does it a lot of disservice because there's a lot of items that you have to collect and the in-game explanation for what they do is not good. And when the uh, the item does a thing as strange and esoteric as being an item that causes you to shrink when you get hit by a boxing glove, it's kind of important that you state that in clear terms. I, I understand why people like that game, but I, I've never been able to have like a great time playing it. Mylon Sprite, I remember being pretty small. So, you know, it looks like his Sprite is... Basically the same resolution as it was on the NES, which, you know, could be a problem for a Game Boy screen. But then again, because this sprite was so small in the first place, maybe it's all right. Obviously, you're going to be seeing less of a level on the screen at one time on the Game Boy. But I don't know. Maybe you can make that work. I wouldn't be opposed to trying this one out on Game Boy, seeing how it holds up. Now that the Super NES is really dominating the coverage of a Nintendo Power magazine, it can be kind of interesting to, to see a lot of the older NES stuff being kind of revived for Game Boy. And, you know, just kind of like, hey, remember this thing that you like? Nintendo already, even in the 90s, was all about reselling us our games. Yep. And uh, just by, by virtue of the fact that they were on cartridges these ones were all limited release well so so one thing to mention here we've talked a lot about whether or not the art in in these segments is uh original or if it's from like the publisher or whatever but i think for both mylon secret castle and adventure island 2 for game boy sections this is pretty clearly original art for the magazine yeah it's very much in that style i mean you look at master higgins on one page and then just turn the page and you see mylon 
they they look like they've been drawn in almost exactly the same style. It would I, I would be shocked if this wasn't uh, Nintendo Power Illustrators working on this. Also, just a much older looking Mylon than what I expected from the character. Like uh, he always sort of read as a young child to me on the NES. And seeing him here, he looks like he almost looks like a like an older Link here. <laughs> yeah, and he's kind of weirdly buff too. Uh, like he's got some pretty well defined abs. It's a strange look for this guy. Uh, cause he is still dressed like a, like an elf or something. Like yeah. He's- and he, he's got the pointy ears and like, am I seeing like a little bit of a, like a hint of like some five o'clock shadow there? I think you are, you know, Mylon, he's been living hard in the castle. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting interpretation of the character that, uh, I definitely wouldn't have thought of. Then we move on to, uh, hey, Krusty's Funhouse on Game Boy. We talked about that game a while ago. We sure did, yeah. It was fine. Uh, and this seems to be the same game. Yeah, pretty much. I- I'm guessing this was probably more in line with like the, the NES version, because that-, that thing came out on everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Again, you know, we're seeing like some shading on like Bart and Krusty and the mice that... I'm not sure we would have seen if this was just assets from the show, but they they look too on model to not be. So I don't know. This one's... Why is Bart's shirt green? That is a good question. Yeah, that's another thing that was kind of off is that his his shirt's green instead of red. The mice have a, 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 a look to them that I would definitely think maybe they were original Nintendo Power illustrations. It could have been just how they were drawn for the cover of the game. That might be it. Oh, that's true, actually. That's that's because I'm pretty sure that Krusty is the one from the game's cover. Anything Simpsons around this time has to feature Bart pretty prominently. Well, yeah, of course, he's the Pugsley of the <laughs> Simpsons. So yes. that's that's what we were all saying back then. Anyway, after that, we've got uh, Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back on Game Boy. Don't know a whole lot about this one. Nah, me either. So this, this does have one bit of text here that is a really confusing statement to me. Thanks to the development efforts of Ubisoft and LucasArts Games, Capcom has entered the world of Star Wars with this one-player action adventure. That's a lot of companies name-dropped in there. And and then it follows it up with, if something seems familiar about the game, it's probably because it is identical to the NES version published by JVC. Wow! So, okay, what what did any of these companies actually do here? That's a great question. Because, yeah, this does definitely appear to be the NES Empire Strikes Back game. Um, You know, it certainly looks like it from what I remember that game looking like. Well, I'm going to see if I can look it up really fast here. It says, uh, published by Ubisoft, developed by Sculptured Software and LucasArts. Yeah, I don't know where Capcom comes into this. And, yeah, JVC published the... NES version. So, yeah, still don't know where Capcom comes in here. Maybe that was just a mistake. Maybe it was. They do talk about Capcom a lot later on in this issue, so maybe somebody just got their wires crossed, but... Yeah, I, I don't know, though. We'll definitely have a Star Wars Empire Strikes Back game to talk about before too long. Yes, but it will be a very different one, because uh, it'll be super. It, it will be very super. Uh, then we get Counselor's Corner, and uh, oh, hey, more Star Wars. We got uh, Super Star Wars, Final Fantasy, Mystic Quest, 
Mega Man 5 and King's Quest 5. Anything in here jump out at you? No, not really. This is all pretty bog standard stuff. Then we get Power Players Challenge, where uh, I don't know, the one thing that jumped out at me there was uh, Street Fighter 2, finish level 7 without continuing. I'm guessing they mean like the difficulty level, which they say get the best ending, which I don't know if they... I guess there were different things that would happen after the... You know, like each character had their own ending sequence, and then there was also like some different congratulatory screens that would be slightly different depending on the difficulty that you beat the game at. Uh, then we get uh, Alien 3 on NES, which um, this game, I remember playing this one back in the day, uh, or at least I had a friend who had it or rented it, I think. And so I ended up playing it that way because I wasn't a, really an Alien fan back then. What did you think of this game back in the day? Looking back at it now, I think it's kind of a it's kind of interesting. The whole premise behind this is I think that you have to rescue all of your your fellow prisoners before a timer runs out and after which they all basically have chest bursters popped out of them so it kind of is a somewhat more graphic game than you'd expect on the nes but i mean you know still Indeed, it's, it's still nes yeah. so you know it's it's not that bad but I'm, I'm wanting to say i think that when nintendo power did their top 100 games in their 100th issue this game was number 100 okay so clearly relatively highly regarded then yeah at least by the folks at nintendo power i guess i've, I've always heard some good stuff about that game but i've never actually played it myself the next thing up here is there's a multi-page spread about dragon warrior 4 uh, aka dragon quest 4 and i am fascinated by the art in this one because usually we have the kind of discussion of oh you know is this original art for the magazine or is this just art from the production company for the game but here i don't actually think it's either one because the thing that's sort of interesting to me here is that the art for the Dragon Quest games, the official art, is done by Akira Toriyama, which you all, I'm sure, are, if you're familiar with him, you're, you probably know that he's the guy who drew Dragon Ball. He also did all the art for Chrono Trigger, and uh, he does the art for all the Dragon Quest games. So he's got a pretty specific, extremely, extremely anime style to his art. And that's not the art that's in here. Uh, you know, Dragon Warrior 4 was the last Dragon Warrior game that came out in America for a while. And it, uh, you know, has has a kind of unique feature where you play through several short chapters as each of the party members by themselves before you kind of get into the main adventure where they all come together. And so there's there's different areas here, that, that uh, different pages here that kind of go through little bits about each of those characters. And the thing that kind of sticks out to me is that this art actually looks a lot like the like Final Fantasy concept art by the the sort of longtime artist for that series at this time, uh, Yoshitaka Amano, which, you know, he has a very different, very kind of distinctive style. And that's kind of a lot like what this looks like. like this kind of looks like they took some Amano art and sort of traced over it. So, like, I don't think this is art for Dragon Warrior 4, but I, I I don't know what it's from. Yeah. Like, so the, the image on the first page of this feature, there's a, a barbarian looking character who sort of reminds me of a little bit of the art style from the very first Nintendo Power Final Fantasy strategy guide in which they were obviously uh, creating new assets to make everything look a lot more like a Western fantasy sort of deal than the actual Japanese made western fantasy that it was <laughs> right yeah looks like something out of you know like almost like a dungeons and dragons manual from the time yes it does yeah 
this kind of reminds me of that. So, like, there's a part of me that thinks maybe this was a Nintendo Power Illustrator who did this. And again, they're they're sort of trying to go for that more Western look for this fantasy game instead of, you know, using any of the probably much more Japanese looking art that actually would have been created for this game. But I don't know for certain. And then, yeah, after the first page, you get stuff that does look a lot more like that Final Fantasy art that you were talking about. Specifically, there's a character on page 86 that, like, straight up looks like Kefka, honestly. Yeah, I'm just really curious about this, because I feel like I can almost suss out what happened here, but I can't. There's just something that, like, if I could find characters from a different game that that looked like these ones i could maybe like make a better connection i don't i don't know it's it's a strange thing though and like it's kind of funny because like as is often the case when they try to go with like a a much different and much less cute style for the art in here that that goes around like a really cute japanese game it's really discordant looking like it's like these very simple brightly colored graphics from the game uh you know it's it's like okay Maybe that's what some of these characters look like, but, you know, probably not. (laughs) But yeah, this is a multi-page spread, and they do, I think, a pretty good job of run through what all the different, you know, chapters of this game are going to be like. You know, I don't know if this would make you more likely to want to play this game if you weren't already on board with playing this kind of game. The Dragon Warrior, aka Dragon Quest games, have a pretty storied history with Nintendo, even over, uh, you know, stateside. I think that the original Dragon Warrior was actually given away as a promotion in early Nintendo Power, really trying to get people into this kind of game pretty early on. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that they would spend, you know, a certain amount of time um, dedicated to this game, even with the NES's diminished presence in the magazine at this point. The only thing that maybe surprises me a little bit is that I don't think we ever got a Dragon Warrior Dragon Quest game on the SNES, did we? No, we didn't. There were two Dragon Quest games made for the Super Famicom, but neither of them came out in the West. Especially strange considering that Dragon Quest V, you know, was and and sort of remains for a lot of Japanese fans like the high point of that series. Um, like when they made uh, like a Dragon Quest animated movie a couple of years ago, Dragon Quest V was the one they based it on because that was the one people had the most nostalgia for. Did they ever re-release that over here on anything else? Yeah, they did um, these very good uh, Nintendo DS remakes of those games, and those all came out in the in the West. Okay, kind of in the vein of like the Final Fantasy III, which also never came out over here officially until it came out on the DS. Exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, there's a very good DS remake of, of Dragon Quest V called Hand of the Heavenly Bride that came out here. The original version of, of both of those games uh, never made it into English back in the day. So these next two we will probably just blaze through here. We've got Mickey's Safari and Letterland, which is only a two-page feature. Uh, This one was obviously geared towards uh, really young kids for the NES. Oh, yeah. We don't see a lot of software aimed at the really young set on the Super NES. There's a few, and those will be interesting to talk about when we get there, but not nearly as many as we had on the NES. And I assume that, you know, it's just because there was a perception that the audience for the NES was also the audience for the SNES, and now they were getting older. And I mean, you know, in a yeah. lot of ways that was probably true, but it is a shame that maybe some of the younger set got left out around that time, too. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I don't really have much to say about uh, Letter Safari. What, what is it called? Safari in Letterland. 
Yeah, there's a B holding a big letter B. I like that. Yeah, you know, that's clever. He's not going to letter people land, though, so I am less interested. <laughs> and uh, speaking of uh, properties that nobody but me probably remembers, uh, next up we've got Widget. You remember this, then? I don't remember this one. I do. This was a short-lived cartoon, uh, another one of those very environmentally focused shows about a an alien and his weird floating brain companion i yeah don't remember if he was supposed to be like a robot or if he was actually like a living thing i don't remember he's got a little bit of a like a great gazoo look to him yeah on, on the image that that they have of him here yeah we will talk more about widget when we get to super widget for the super nes uh, but i think we're still a little ways away from that one uh this is the nes game it's just regular widget, not super widget. Though he does apparently fight a boss called Mega Slank in this game. So, yep. <laughs> you know, uh, that's good. So after that, we get a big old feature about Capcom. What's so hot about Capcom? What is so hot about Capcom? I, I mean, Capcom was a pretty hot company around this time. They had Street Fighter 2, which was huge in arcades. They were obviously a very important part of Nintendo's early history and, and continue to be pretty important to Nintendo even around this time. They just released the uh, the Mickey Mouse game. Magical Quest, yeah. That we talked about a few episodes ago. So we've got a lengthy feature here about Capcom, which highlights sort of some of their main game franchises. It talks a lot about how they are a big company in the arcades and they can bring those games to your your Super Nintendo, that that's super cool. There's even like a chronology here of games that Capcom has released and what platforms they've released them for, which I think that's pretty cool. It's a big spotlight. Uh, there's a section about Mega Man. There's a section about all their Disney games. There's a section about Final Fight and Street Fighter 2. And yeah, it's... It's interesting. What what do you think is like the intent behind this piece here? So this was probably around the time when Capcom was inking deals with Sega. Like there, I remember like a promotional piece of art in which Sonic the Hedgehog and Mega Man are shaking hands, sort of indicating this partnership between Sega and Capcom to release some of their games on Genesis platforms as well. Uh, one thing that they did do, for example, was they released remakes of Mega Man's one through three on the Genesis. Although over here we only saw that on the <laughs> online Sega Genesis channel uh, until recently when they released those games on the Sega Genesis Mini, which yeah. actually has me kind of wanting one of those. But um, Sega was starting to branch out a little bit more. And part of me wonders, was this a way of Nintendo kind of making a power move here? Just kind of trying to say, you know, like, hey, Capcom, remember who your real friends are, huh? Remember where you, you know, we, mm, we really yeah. made the money for you. And I mean, that's a good question. Yeah, the the deals between Nintendo and Capcom were obviously quite lucrative for both companies. But that's because Capcom, they probably had the capital to make these really high quality games that a lot of other companies couldn't quite measure up to outside of, you know, like the, the big ones like Konami and Capcom and Nintendo's own. Um, yeah, their own in-house games. It was lucrative for them, but. Nintendo's deals were always very heavily weighted towards Nintendo. The developers who wanted to publish games on Nintendo systems assumed a lot of risk. They had to buy a lot of cartridges up front if they wanted to publish there. 
And if anyone tried to, you know, release things on their own independently, provided they could somehow get around the lockout technology that Nintendo had built into their systems, they could straight up strong arm a lot of retailers and just say, look, if you uh, if you sell unlicensed stuff in your store, we will cut you off and you will not get the next Mario game to sell. Now that there was legitimate competition in the hardware market who was willing to make you know deals with companies that um, did not have them assuming nearly as much risk. Nintendo was sort of threatened there. They had to play a little bit nicer. And I, you know, I don't know when it was that they really started playing a lot nicer with companies. I want to say I still think that they were pretty, pretty tough to work with in the SNES era, but I don't know for certain. My impression is that some relationships certainly got frayed during this time because companies were were looking at the actual like legitimate competitor to Nintendo that was in the market and and deciding to you know maybe spread their spread their goods around a little bit mm-hmm. and that that ultimately that kind of ended up with the big exodus from like Nintendo's platform to Sony's platform once the PlayStation came around yeah. a few years later but I don't know what Nintendo exactly was trying to do to kind of keep them around you know i mean i know that part of the fact that so many companies like konami and capcom ended up really kind of and squaresoft of course kind of uh you know jumping ship had to do with the technology involved in in you know that next group of systems that came after after the 16-bit era the relationships that got sort of busted up then uh took a long time to heal not only that but i mean there's just a lot of video game companies, you know, smaller developers that just didn't survive this era because it became so prohibitively expensive to publish on these consoles that uh, the money just kind of dried up, too. And we heard a little bit about that, you know, when we talked about the interview with the, the guy behind, uh, what was it, uh, 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 Desert Strike? You had to sell, you, you had to be able to sell a certain amount of copies for this to end up being profitable, but you had to put all that money up first because, you know, Nintendo said, you know, hey, there's there's a minimum amount of cartridges you have to buy and and this, this, and this, and if you know if they don't sell, the retailers maybe expected the developer to buy those cartridges back. And I, I think his quote was just like, "Yeah, look, nobody's crystal ball was that good. We we couldn't, <laughs> you know, we couldn't survive that." The other thing that I think could also possibly be going on with this feature is trying to remind people Capcom has all of these these games that you know if you liked Street Fighter two. Hey, guess what? This company makes a lot of other games for our system, and they're going to bring more of them in the future. So why would you jump ship to another system that may not have all of these good Capcom games? Like, I think it's probably still rooted in that insecurity about Capcom, you know, branching out a little more. But it could also be more directed at consumers, like the the players themselves, and being like, nah, you don't need that Genesis. All this great stuff's here. Eventually, they're going to put, they're definitely going to put Cadillacs and Dinosaurs out on the Super Nintendo, and you want to be here for that. So Yeah, which I do not believe they did. I don't think they did that. I wonder if there was any talk at some points that, you know, if there was a plan to bring things like Captain Commando and Cadillacs and Dinosaurs to the SNES that just fell through later on. Because if Nintendo just published this, you could almost see this as them just trying to throw Capcom under the bus here. Like, oh, yeah, see, we just talked about Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. Now you got to make it for our system. Right, yeah. Oddly enough, we've already talked about Magic Sword, which they seem to be speculating about here. So maybe our timeline is off on that one. Yeah, Knights of the Round, though, I 
Knights of the Round, I want to say, I do think comes out on the Super NES eventually. Regardless, this is a pretty cool look at Capcom's gameography up to this point. I, I think it's a neat look back and a neat retrospective. That's an interesting feature. And another interesting feature is the Nintendo Power Awards. The Nesters! The Nesters. I don't know if this was the last year that they called them the Nesters. I want to say I don't think Nesters got all that much longer as being the mascot for this magazine. That's good. He's a horrible child, and I hate (laughs) seeing him in a suit with really, like, artificially broadened shoulders. Yeah. They've got some categories here for, you know, these, they're sort of game awards and, and, and these are, these are awards where they're giving you, um, the nominees and then asking people to write in casting their votes, right? Yes. Yeah. The, basically that was the player's poll for this issue would have been, Hey, vote for which one you think should win. I'm noticing a few strange things here. First of all, right out of the gate, they've got an award for graphics and sound. Why on earth would you combine those two things? Those are two very different categories. Some of the nominees there are pretty suspect, too. I don't think we're going to talk too much about the Game Boy and NES nominees, but for the Super NES, we've got Super Star Wars, Soul Blazer, The Legend of Zelda, Link to the Past, uh, Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally, and The Addams Family. Honestly, like, I mean, we've said a lot of nice things about the Addams Family game, the original one, but... I don't think it hangs here. No, it definitely does not. Think back about a game like, say, uh, Axelay. Yeah. You know, that's a game that, uh, you know, there's definitely real problems with that game, but it is gorgeous to look at. Yeah. Like, how does that not get into this category, but the Adams Family does? Like, I do not get that. Yeah, and I mean, while Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally did a good job of looking like the cartoon, so did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, quite frankly. Where is that? Yes, that's great. That's a good question. Yeah, where is Ninja Turtles? Where is Axelay? Like, just so many games that I would put before most of these. And honestly, you know, like, The Legend of Zelda, Link to the Past, looks good, sounds amazing, if this were just a graphics category, I don't think I would put that game in there. No, that's that's true. The graphics there are a little simple looking. I do think there's, as we talked about when we talked about that game, I do think there's some nice subtlety in that game, like how it does the the shifts from like the light to dark world. But, you know, it's I wouldn't say it's like a showstopper or anything. Yeah, not in the graphical department anyway. I mean, it, music department, sure. Uh, which, again, even more reason why those should not be the same category. Theme and fun, I think they are a little bit closer. Legend of Zelda Link to the Past and Mario Paints, Street Fighter 2 and are, are good nominees here. The Simpsons, see, I feel like maybe we're mixing up theme with graphics at this point. I, I don't really get what they're going for here with theme and fun as a unified category either. Yeah, I mean, if by theme they mean like a adaptation then yeah absolutely simpsons visually looks great it's not a fun game to play though yeah no it should not be in any category that has the word fun in it yeah challenge we've got the adams family legend of zelda uh space megaforce which is interesting um super smash tv and super star wars i think super star wars is a good pick here i think legend of zelda is good uh star wars is a very hard game definitely um this one definitely just feels like kind of a grab bag, honestly. I mean, they all kind of do, but it's like, why some of these? Yeah, I, I think the biggest problem here is they, they just did not do a good job of picking categories and, and getting a good grasp on what each category meant. Play control here, we've got Contra 3, Street Fighter 2, Mario Kart, Super Star Wars, and TMNT 4, Turtles in Time. There's 
Ninja Turtles. Honestly, that should have been in at least two of these other categories. Yeah, it it's very much should have. The fact that it's there makes it an even stranger omission from like the graphics category and the theme and fun category. Then after that, we've got Best Hero, which, you know, this is, these are just like the weird fun things. This is basically just a popularity contest. We've got Chun-Li, Darkwing Duck, Guile, Link, and Mega Man. I'm happy that they at least included Chun-Li from the Street Fighter roster here. I mean, yeah, honestly, they could have just made it all Street Fighter characters this year, probably. And they definitely could have. I mean, they almost made it all Capcom characters. That's the true. only one that's not from a Capcom game here is Link. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got uh, Best Villain. We've got Aghanim, Dr. Wily, Evil Jafar. As opposed to Good Jafar. Yeah. M. Bison and Wario. I, I don't know if I've got any qualms with this category. No, it's fine. I think Wario is a cool choice, just given how important that character would become to the overall Mario canon. Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. Um, I wonder if people saw that coming, if they knew that like Wario was going to be as big a deal as he ended up being. Oh, people definitely liked Wario right from the off. And, like, he's all over the marketing for, for six golden coins. So clearly they were like, oh, yeah, we got something here. Maybe there's a case to be made that M. Bison is, is a bigger deal. But I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you could actually make that argument these days. I don't know. So which one? What was Aganim? He was the not Ganon from uh, Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. Oh, got it. Got it. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Um, and I may not be pronouncing it correctly. I have no idea. So uh, most innovative, we got uh, only Super NES games for this one, which is interesting. Uh, Mario Kart, Mario Paint, NCAA Basketball, Out of This World, and Super Faceball 2000. So inspired choices, I think, here. Not a bad category, actually. This one, I think they did actually find some games that are kind of pushing that hardware pretty hard. Yeah, I think Super Faceball 2000 maybe doesn't hang here. Um well, I think it's interesting that they tried doing a first-person shooter on the SNES, but it just doesn't work. And uh, Mario Kart, I don't... Mm. I mean, it was a, you know, two-player Mode 7 racing game. Yeah. Say what you will about how that game has aged, but it did essentially invent a genre, so... Um, I don't know, what do you think should go in there and place a Super Faceball 2000? You know, I, I may actually put Axel A in here as well. Oh, you know what? That is a good choice, actually. Uh, we got Best Sports Game, Super Batter Up, NCAA Basketball, John Madden Football 93, NHL PA Hockey 93, and Roger, Roger Clemens MB, MVP Baseball. <laughs> Drop both those baseball games. Yeah, totally. NCAA Basketball, I think, would take this pretty handily. I think so, too. Though I, I think um, John Madden Football 93 and NHL PA are both fine games. I agree, yeah. I would have maybe included one of the better golf games or maybe two of the better golf games from the previous year. Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. I don't know how many golf games came out in the last year, actually. A lot of them came out early on. They did. Yeah. But I think that we at least got like the second um, true golf classics game in the last year. Right. That's true. I think we got like Irem skins in there as well. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Stop, stop the anti-golf agenda. Because I've got an anti-baseball agenda as far as the SNES is concerned. <laughs> All right. And then we got best overall. We've got Contra 3, Legend of Zelda and Link to the Past, Mario Paint, Street Fighter 2, Super Mario Kart, Super Star Wars, and TMNT 4, Turtles in Time. It's got some games from the high end of our list, but we did not rank several of these games nearly as high as as you would need to have them for, for them to be uh, on the, the best overall. Honestly, I'm I'm a little surprised that we didn't see out of this world in here. I know that you know that's that's yeah probably a controversial one for us, but I, I stand by it though. I, I think that that game did pretty well. I might actually replace like Super Star Wars with that one, maybe. 
I would definitely of all the ones on this list, Super Super Star Wars is the one that I would just drop right out of here. So what what do you think would you would actually pick for this one? I, I think it's got to be Street Fighter Two, honestly. I, I, yeah, I think it has to be Street Fighter Two, as it goes with our list. So it goes with these uh, these rankings. Yeah, I mean, Legend of Zelda would be a pretty close one for me, but I I think Street Fighter Two, just given how important that game was for yeah that year. Um, where, you know, Legend of Zelda Link to the Past is a great game, but it's it's sort of just an evolution on what had come before it, whereas Street Fighter 2, like, basically created the fighting game genre as we know it today. Like, it, I mean, it didn't invent the genre, but... It, it kind of put it into its, like, final form, though. What you think of as a fighting game basically starts with Street Fighter 2. Yeah, so I guess we'll see what the uh, readers of Nintendo Power thought next month when we... Uh go over the uh, the results there. Uh, we got the top 20. I'm not going to worry about that too much since we just spent a lot of time talking about the, the nesters. Um, so we got a couple of things here in Now Playing. We've got uh, Where in Time is Carmen Sandiego. I don't think that one's coming up for a while, at least according to our list. May, it looks like. So... Yeah, that's a ways out, huh? A couple of months there. I can't wait to talk about Carmen Sandiego. I... I I really like that whole franchise. Yeah, me too. Um, Super Conflict, as we already said, that one's coming out this month, and I'm not looking forward to that. Uh, King Arthur's World, I'm much more intrigued by, and that one we will be talking about pretty soon. Brawl Brothers, I think this is another uh, game that comes from the the series that brought us uh, Rival Turf, if I'm not mistaken. No, it's funny, actually, the text here for it explicitly says this is not a sequel to rival turf or double dragon but like it literally is but it's very funny you know my my i am not a sequel to rival turf shirt is answering a lot of questions uh (laughs) right now brawl brothers technically is not a sequel to rival turf but the game that it was in japan is a sequel to the game that Rival Turf was in Japan. No, that's right, actually. That's true. Oh, God. Yeah. Those all got localized into completely different games and had all their stories scrubbed out and turned into other things. So, so that's why they're saying it's not a sequel to Rival Turf, even though, okay. like, technically they are correct, but... Only if you kind of tilt your head and squint a little bit. Yeah, they're they're kind of correct by omitting some really important information, let's say. Um, we've got Super Strike Eagle, which again, coming out soon. Uh, Wayne's World is, uh, I think that one is also coming out this month. Oh, March might be rough. <laughs> it's going to be mixed, I think. I think it's just going to have some ups and downs. Great. So. Did we say that about February too? And then February ended up not being that bad. Yeah, I think we did. I think we came into February with some low low expectations i i think that was because a big part of that was that harley's humongous adventure did not end up being the flop that we thought it was going to be i am hard pressed to think that we will find any sort of redemption like that for wayne's world though uh yeah that's that's a fair that's a very fair point uh we got tiny tune adventures which we've already talked about that was a good one and then we've got uh ultimate fighter which let me see did we did we even get that one over here, first of all? It's a culture brain game, which I think that could kind of go either way. Ultimate Fighter, I'm seeing coming out in June of 1994. Another one of those. I wonder what goes on when, when we see something coming out, or we see something reviewed in Nintendo Power that doesn't end up coming out for over a year. Though, being granted, our 
our list could be wrong. Maybe it came out closer to what Nintendo Power said it did than what our list has. So. Yeah, it's it's weird, actually. They seem to be operating on a strange time scale in this magazine. Like, I noticed at one point, uh, somewhere in here, I don't remember where, they referenced that game Equinox again that there was like a big feature about but that isn't actually going to come out to like the end of 93 and they they referenced it as like a thing you could use to see in your mind what some other feature in some other game is like like assuming that people had played it uh, in any case so we've got pack watch we've got uh, an upcoming battletoads game battletoads and battle maniacs uh super Bomberman, which is interesting because that is the game that introduced the multi-tap accessory for the senes oh yeah there's a picture of it basically once we've got super bomberman we are living in a world in which four-player gaming on the SNES is possible hot daggity uh then we got railroad tycoon which i did not know came out on nope the SNES, and i i'm not entirely sure that one actually makes it but we'll we'll find out nope railroad tycoon was never released for the SNES. And then we got a uh, Pocky and Rocky, which that one absolutely did come to the SNES and got a sequel. So we'll be talking about two of those. Uh, Outlander, which I believe they actually state in this feature. Yes, they do. Um, started out as a Mad Max game and they couldn't secure the license. So they just turned it into Outlander. Yeah, no, I was really surprised to see them actually just straight up say that in the text about the game here. And it's it's hard to hide it. You know, I mean, it just is a Mad Max game. They just kind of changed the character design and the names very slightly. Yeah, but I'm with you. I am kind of surprised that they actually acknowledge that. Uh, then we get Mario is Missing. That'll be an interesting story, I'm it's, sure. It sure will, yeah. Uh, maybe not an interesting game, but yeah, this was one of the few times that Nintendo not only licensed Mario to another company, but that game ended up on a Nintendo system. And then we've got uh, Superman by Sunsoft, which I do not know a whole lot about that particular Superman game. We've also got uh, Duck Dodgers in there. Yeah, a lot of Looney Tunes games came out on the... Uh, Sinus. And then we get a two-page article about CES. The Consumer Electronics Show, which is uh, functionally was was sort of a, a precursor to E3 for the video game industry. Mm-hmm. Trade show, big trade show for the whole industry, really, in, in Las Vegas. We got some pictures from it here. We've got kind of a rundown of all the stuff that Capcom and its various, or it's not just Capcom, actually, but Nintendo and all of its various licensees were, were showing at at the show, uh, including some stuff that, you know, is a little further away, um, including also, actually, I think they reference here a Final Fantasy game that would have, I guess, been like a localized Final Fantasy V that doesn't didn't actually end up coming out. Well, they talked a little bit about that in a Player's Pulse article or, you know, it response to a letter saying that there was maybe the possibility that Final Fantasy V would get released as Final Fantasy III over here. But yeah, that did not end up happening, obviously. There's also talk about a LucasArts game that is... Well, I mean, it, it's it's not even ambiguous. It's um, Zombies Ate My Neighbors. It didn't have a name yet, but the description makes it obvious that it's Zombies Ate My Neighbors. Yeah, and uh, we also get some good pictures in here of, of various like mascot characters that were walking around at CES, uh, including your friend and mine, Bubsy the Bobcat. 
Cat, Ugh. who uh, his game is not out yet, but he's already here. And an absolutely cursed looking live action mascot character of Mega Man. <laughs> Incidentally, I showed various pictures of like the the art and also this guy here to uh to my partner while i was reading through the magazine and eventually she was like i thought you loved me why do you keep showing me these <laughs> these awful things but you know uh people gotta know they gotta know about uh creepy buff mylon they gotta know about horrible horrible mascot Mega Man. why did they make his whole face like a weird ugly mascot why didn't they just have an actual person just wearing a Mega Man clothes I, I guess they were trying to make him look a little more like the sprite of the kind of like squashed sprite of Mega Man in the NES games but it's so bad it's really not good I dressed up like Mega Man for Halloween when I was in third grade I'm gonna just say my Halloween costume looked better than this thing and my helmet was just a turned backwards baseball helmet that I painted blue that's that's all you needed to do guys all you needed to do. Um, there's also a screenshot of something called Dominius. I'm not familiar with that one. No, I, I don't know what that is either, actually. Yeah, it's mentioned very briefly here. Uh, fantasy gamers will want to take a look at ASCII's Dominius for the Super NES, in which you control an army of 500 monsters. Uh, don't know what that's about. Yeah, uh, don't know if that one made it out or not. Nope. Again, Dominius, or actually probably Dominus, never got released either. Uh, a game with that name did come out on PC sometime in 1994, but none of the planned console versions ever came out. There's a picture of uh, one of the Goombas from the Super Mario Brothers movie in here. Was that movie that movie out yet at this point? I don't know. This comes out in May of 93. Wow, all right, yeah. Yeah, trying to get the, the hype going. Oh, that means we, we still have yet to f get to the Nintendo Power issue where they have an article about the movie. That Oh, man, that's going to be something. That will be interesting to read, knowing what we know about the production of that movie now that's that's come out to the public about just how fraught that whole production was <laughs> and how the yeah. husband and wife team directing it were actively barred from the set and the movie had to be finished by the director of photography man that was a that was a really wild one there yeah and bob hoskins and john leguizamo just drinking their way through the movie to kind of to to deal with being on that set every day like i think there was like stories about grips being yelled at and, and having coffee thrown at them or something like that oh like, god oh awful awful stuff yeah. yikes that sucks so much we'll get there when we get there and uh, you know we'll probably do a quick change of the channel about it someday too but probably uh, we will that, that's one i'm sure we'll get to eventually yeah but for, first we have to do mortal Kombat eventually which uh I don't know. We'll, we'll see when we get around to that again. We'll see. Yeah. One last little thing here. We've got uh, Nintendo teams up with Kellogg's. I guess you can order stuff from Kellogg's. You get like little watches that have Tetris on them, uh, rebates, um, oh, ID stickers with Mario characters on them. Yeah, for your, for your school ID. I, you know what? I probably had some of those at some point. I probably did too. You know, man, I would have thought this Tetris watch was so cool. Like, I would have been so excited about it, and then I would have played it, like, twice, and then never again. Probably, yeah. But uh, it's a neat thing, anyway. I wonder if anybody still has one of those out there. I wonder if there is a working one of those Tetris watches still in the wild somewhere. I bet somebody's got one somewhere. And uh, that's it. Just, you know, stuff coming up for the next issue, which we've already said is going to be centered around Star Fox. And 
that's your lot. There we go. Another issue of Nintendo Power in the books for us. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I enjoyed this issue more than the last one, I think. Uh, I thought this had some interesting stuff in it. Uh, I'm excited about some of the upcoming games, and uh, I'm less excited about some of the other upcoming games. Yeah, I feel like there's a, the possibility that March 93 might be a bit of a slog, but we'll um, we'll see, I guess. So uh, kind of an open question for us has been, how many games are we going to be covering going forward? And I... I kind of feel like we can leave that up to however many we feel like <laughs> in a given episode. Yeah, I, I I think that's fair. I am okay with just saying like, hey, we will plan on doing three, but if one of these ends up being a little bit more involved than we anticipate, then we have the right to change that. With that in mind, what are we looking at for next episode, our first episode in March of 93? Okay, so actually, you know what, as I'm looking at the schedule here, everything I just said, I'm throwing out the window because we've got four games to get through before we get to Star Fox, and Star Fox is probably going to get its own episode. So I think we are just going to do two and two for right now. So we're going to do Doomsday Warrior and Inindo Way of the Ninja, which is a Koei game, which means maybe I'm going to be drunk for the entire episode next time. I don't know. Hopefully that one is the one that uh, turns us around on, on Koei games. I, I think we did play that one, right? Yes, and I think this one is a little bit more geared towards a traditional console RPG, so I don't actually think this one is going to be as bad. Alright, well, uh, that's exciting. Uh, please, we hope you enjoyed this. Uh, as always, we hope you come back next time to listen to us talk about those games. And we don't usually do serious segments for these although we didn't do one last time we forgot so that's true yes that just means we'll have to get extra serious next time that's right thank you all so much for listening we hope you enjoyed this we will talk to you all again soon until then i'm steampunk link i am emmy zero play it loud Our intro outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoax, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty free at Technoax.com. That's T E K N O A X E.com.